Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Hey, everybody, this is a, a special Best of Season 1 edition of the Steam Room presented by Tractor Supply Company. Uh, This is going to be a two-parter, and the theme of this part one is best of guests. If you count Dan Marino with his cameo, uh, we welcomed 45 different towels into the Steam Room in Season 1, and 97% of them remained on. I'm not going to tell you who's fell off. I mentioned this best of special has a part one and a part two and almost feels like uh, season one had a part one and a part two. Part one, December through February, included guests like Chris Fowler and Jake Tapper, Michael Wilbon, Channing Fry, among others. Uh, and then on March 5th, and this was big, we had Dr. Sanjay Gupta on the show so that Chuck and I could ask him questions about this, uh, this mysterious new virus everybody was just starting to talk about and take notice of. We wrapped up that interview talking about how excited we all were to see each other at the Final Four in Atlanta in a few weeks. Obviously, we didn't know it at that time, but that would be the last podcast we would record in studio. When we picked back up a month later on Zoom, The world was a different place. Everything was different. On the podcast, instead of talking about sports and entertainment, the conversation shifted to how's everybody dealing with this thing? And as is always the case with this show, um, there were plenty of moments that were pretty heavy. um, And thankfully, there were some lighter moments, too. One example of that, uh, when Houston Texans star J.J. Watt joined us in April to share a rather unique experience as one half of a quarantine newlywed couple. You know, JJ, this is obviously I'm a lot older than you, but still the craziest thing I've ever been through in my life. How have you adjusted to just sheltering in place? Yeah, I mean, it's it's truly unbelievable. I've never seen anything like it. And I think, like I said, I'm fortunate to have the workouts because if I wasn't able to get the energy out and just kind of stuck in the house, I don't know what I would do, but my wife and I, we just got married in February. And so uh, the first couple months of marriage, the honeymoon stage goes extremely quickly when you're you're in a situation like this. Hey, it always goes extremely quickly. I'll tell you that. So what's that been like for you and Kalia to be to be in this 
closer proximity. Like who does the dishes? Who does the laundry? What else are you divvying up? I'm dishes. Uh, I'm in charge of the dishes, dishwasher, hand washing dishes, cheese laundry. And we both have attempted cooking quite a bit. And we have set off the fire alarm in our house four times in the whole thing, <laughs> which I think percentage wise is I'll take it four times in whatever, two months, I'll take it. Yeah. But uh, my specialty is still pouring cereal into a bowl with milk. And another from the opposite end of the culinary spectrum, one of Chuck's all-time favorites, the mayor of Flavortown himself. And I wanted to make sure that I pronounced your name correctly because people look at it and say Fieri, but it's Fietti. It's Fietti. You crushed it. The Any way to start a great interview is when you come out of the gate with the enunciation exactly right. Yeah, it's Fietti. There's a guy named Eddie. You've got to pay a fee. I told you, I've been watching a lot of Triple Ds because I, I think it, I'm not just blowing smoke. But this is my question. Out of all the people in the world to get quarantined with, you right at the top of everybody's damn list. <laughs> but do you do all the cooking right now? Charles, I am cooking like I, I'm, I'm in my playground. I mean, my wife is actually going a little bit nuts about it because she comes, I'm up here at our ranch. Behind my pizza oven, there's a big two-door commercial refrigerator. And she'll come up and go, what is this? What did you make? You made meatballs. You made three different kinds of meatballs. We've got Italian meatballs, got Mexican meatballs, got Asian meatballs, got clam chowder, you got beef stew. We've got paella. We've got pasole. She goes, who are you feeding? I said, I'm maybe... It's maybe it's just nerves. I don't know. I'm cooking. I found, I have stuff. I've got time. I cook. She goes, this is getting out of control. <laughs> hey, I just want meatballs, man. Don't be asking me no hard questions. <laughs> While Chuck watched reruns of diners, drive-ins, and dives, seemingly everyone else in America was binging Tiger King. Come on, admit it. I did too. We never welcomed Joe Exotic, or Exotic Joe, as Chuck calls him, into the steam room. But we were on his show. Apparently, we have Shaq to thank for that. So the other day, we saw Tiger King, which I happened to be in. You guys are in it, hey, too, by the way. We're all, I know I was going to say, we're all in it, too, very briefly. Yeah, because of me. I'm sorry. Well, how much time did you spend with Exotic Joe? That's what America really wants to know. Only the time, uh, remember when, uh, remember, remember when we was a lot of off? stuttering going on right there. Listen, man. <laughs> OKC, so remember when uh, OKC was playing San Antonio? Yeah. You guys, you guys were flying, but I was driving. So on the way there, on the highway, I saw a sign that said Tiger. So I went. That was the first time I went. I went, you know, gave, um, said hi, went, you know, gave him some money to uh, give me a couple white Tigers. That's when I came back on the show and said, hey, I just got two Tigers. And then I think we went to Oklahoma City one more time. So only... Only saw Joe once. The second time I went, they was like, hey, man, you don't think you should come back? A lot of stuff was going on. And I never went back. Wow. Well, yeah, that's why America want to know why you went back. No. Only went once, Chuck. What's your affinity? I'm just asking, did he go see Exotic no, Joe I, twice? No, but, but. Went back two years later, because that was the series that I that I won the three-point shooting contest over Charles at the peak over there at OKC. Listen to my attorney, Ernie Johnson, at law. Only went twice, America. <laughs> you have an affinity 
for exotic animals? Like, obviously you do. Like, do you, what, and which ones do you like? I was on Mike Tyson's podcast the other day and I told a story. When I was a youngster, Mike saw me in Vegas say, come to the house. I get to the house, Mike comes answer the door. <clears throat> a little white tiger runs down the steps. I'm terrified. I, I go to back out the door. Mike's like, no, 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 worry about it. Mike is playing with a white tiger. And I'm like, wow. And he said, uh, so I asked him, I said, where you get this tiger from? He said, uh, you know, Siegfried and Roy, they live around the corner. You want to go to the show? I go to the show. Siegfried and Roy, all white tigers. I'm like, man. So now every zoo I go to, they must have white tigers for me to go because those things are beautiful, bro. I'm telling you. You went from Siegfried and Roy to Exotic Joe. <laughs> <laughs> Question, Chuck. When you went... Did you ever leave with any bead bracelets? Did you watch that documentary? <laughs> yes, I did. Let me tell you something. Maybe one of the craziest things I've ever seen in my life. I would have to agree with you. I, I didn't know any of that stuff was going on. Because I remember the second time I went back, the other guy was like, hey, man, there's a lot of stuff going on. You might not want to come back. I said, yeah, and you ain't got to tell me nothing else. And I never went back. Hey, you know what's amazing? How about old girl who got her arm bit off and came back to work in five days? I know. That was crazy, right? Listen, if I get, hey, listen, if I get hurt in TNT, I'm taking at least two or three months off. But, hey, but, but Chuck, I, I ain't going to lie. I ain't going to lie. When I got there, his hair was done. He had on eyeliner. And he was, he was like one of those performing artists <laughs> at a circus. That's what he was. And listen, he had a lot of beautiful animals there, brother. He had tigers, chimpanzees. Snakes, little kitten puppies, wolves. I actually had a great day because you know it ain't nothing to do in uh, Oklahoma City. So I, I actually stayed there like, you know, a couple hours and just sat with animals and just chilled. <laughs> and they took me in the back and let me hold some kittens. Hey, you just sit there a couple hours with Exotic Joe? No, with the kittens. Okay, okay. all right. After Tiger King, um, just as we collectively sought the next quarantine comfort, it arrived in the form of a 10-hour Michael Jordan documentary. One of my favorite conversations was talking The Last Dance with a man who happened to be right by MJ's side for most of it. Talking, of course, about our main man, Ahmad Rashad. It's so nice to be with you fellas. It's just wonderful. Give me something to do because I'm bored as hell. <laughs> Man, has it been fun to watch that uh, that last dance. And look, you are featured prominently and, and for a good reason, man, because your relationship with Michael, it, you know, they don't get much tighter than that. You know, uh, there's been so many things when I sit and watch the thing. I think the first thing that comes to mind is I forgot how really good he was. You know, I mean, I really, I mean, I, I was there the whole time. You know, I was there for Charles's whole career also. And you forget how good these guys were. I, re I was telling somebody the other day that during the playoff games, we would go in a room after the games, uh, late and smoke cigars and talk about the game and talk about all the plays. And I remember telling Quinn Buckner, I must have told him this like 10 times. It's like, hey, man, there's no way that Michael can play better than that. And then the next game, he played better than that. It was just a wonderful Time to be around, and as I watch it, I rem you know what I remember most about Charles? When they beat Chicago, we were at a restaurant eating, and after I had to interview Charles at the end of the game, he said, the Lord told me that we were going to win the game, right? And it was kind of funny. You know, we laughed about it and the whole thing, and the game was over, and, you know, Charles is always happy-go-lucky, just, okay, we got another one to play. And then that night, we were eating at a restaurant. I know you remember this, Charles. We are eating at a restaurant in a back room, Michael, myself, a bunch of other people, and Charles walked in. 
And Charles was making, just making jokes like, you know, Hey, what's happening you guys? Yeah, we got y'all and this kind of thing. And there was nothing said, <laughs> nothing. So Charles realized that, okay, I guess this ain't a fun room. I'm going to leave the room. <laughs> so, he, so he turned. No, that, that wasn't a fun room. It wasn't a fun room. <laughs> but those are the kind of things that I, that I remember. And it was, um, it was just a wonderful time. Well, obviously, clearly, Michael's a bad loser. That's number one. <laughs> when did you, because you guys got me hooked on cigars. When did that start? <laughs> the first championship. The first championship, because we had, we got, we had gotten these cigars out in um, Las Vegas that had sweet tips on the end of them. So oh, because we, you know, we weren't real cigar smokers at that time. Yeah. We had these sweet cigars. And so we just sort what, of. You know, what, Swisher Sweets? No, not Swisher Sweets. It was a real, <laughs> okay. no, it, wasn't that. it was a real cigar, but it had a sweet tip on it. All right. And you could only get them at this place out in Las Vegas. We always had those. And then it got to the point where I would, if, uh, if I was doing a game, uh, Michael and I would, I would go to, to the arena and find a room that we could go to while he got dressed. So I'd get to the arena. He'd come and we'd go to this room. Phil Jackson would come too. Uh, and we'd go and sit down and we'd just talk, smoke a cigar, talk, laugh about I, anything, some crazy thing in high school, some, the subject matter was different every single time, but that was, that was sort of the way that I got prepared to do my job and the way he got a chance to get away from everything and laugh about stuff before he went back into battle. And same with Phil. You know, you want to take this time to apologize to me for yelling at me uh, when I didn't know how to smoke good cigars. <laughs> so, er, so Ernie, so when I so I started hanging out with Michael and Ahmad and we'd play golf and we'd smoke. So I didn't know the difference between regular cigars and great cigars. So I started playing golf with these guys that they're smoking some <laughs> of the best stuff in the world. And I was just learning how to smoke cigars. And I would take like, five or six to 10 puffs and put the cigar out. And these guys would look at me like, yo man, you got to finish that cigar. That's one of the best in the world. So then they taught me, Chuck, when you become a real cigar smoker, you got to have two sets of cigars. You got to have one for the riffraff who's going to take three or four puffs and put it out. And then you got to have the good stuff for real cigar smokers. And um, when, when my, Ahmad yelled at me that time, I got it, Ahmad. I got stuff for the riffraff and I got a special for the guys who know what the hell they're doing. So I appreciate that. I forgive you for yelling at me. Thanks for taking us back to your days in the riffraff. <laughs> it was so funny you know the things i had to tell charles is like you know these cigars we're smoking these are about a hundred dollars a cigar you know you can't like take two puffs and throw it away and charles just thought it was like he thought it was a i thought a, it was a swisher sweet he thought it was a swisher sweet <laughs> so he was like hey give charles a cigar out of that other box <laughs> here hey i got a i got a question here for both of you Okay, so I'm, I'm counting up. So it's 82. So it's almost 40 years, Ahmad. You and you and MJ have had this this bond. All right. Yeah. Going back, going back to 82. Chuck, you used to have that bond. Yes. Right. right? Yes. Yes. Do you do you wish you had what Ahmad still has? Yes. With Michael. Yes. Then how are you going to fix it? Uh, I don't know that yet, Ernie. I don't know the answer to that question, brother. I wish I could give you a, a, a proper answer. I don't know the answer to that question. But obviously you want to fix it. 
I would like to fix it, but you know, Michael's doing great. Uh, I'm doing great. We had a disagreement. Uh, we're probably both too stubborn. Uh, let me rephrase it. I know we are both too stubborn. Uh, <laughs> so I think, seriously, I think we're both just, we're both just jackasses to be honest with you. Ahmad, how much thought do you think MJ gives to, gives to something like this to, you know, making things right with guys who it used to be right with? I think that uh, people don't realize the relationship that Charles and Michael have had over the years, going way back, yeah. going way back to the point where I remember talking about, uh, you remember the Olympic team that, that you didn't make? Yeah. The, oh, coach yeah. Was, the coach was crazy or whatever. It was. Uh, <laughs> uh, the words you're thinking of was just a prick, Ahmad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just a prick. And That's so what you I was. remember Michael telling me all about that and whole like that. But you guys were such great, you were soulmates. You're very, very dear friends. And somehow it just got out of whack somewhere, but there's no telling. You can't tell me you still don't love him. And he can't tell me he still don't love you. You just got some weird, it's almost like brothers that get, get into an argument. At some point you come back, but they're still family. You can say whatever you want that I know deep inside. I know both these guys as well as anybody could know them. And I know that it's only a matter of time. On top of everything we had going on with the pandemic, um, then our sights shifted and there was much more to talk. And there were tough times. Uh, I mean, the names George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, Jacob Blake, Breonna Taylor. Uh, they would echo as tragic symbols of the injustices levied against black Americans. And serve as a wake-up call to white America that systemic racism is still very much a problem today, and it's everybody's problem. And with those tragedies uh, and that countrywide reckoning, there's a lot of pain and also a lot of conversation. And from those discussions, man, we learned a lot. The dialogues we got to have with Don Lemon or Maria Taylor, Van Jones, Killer Mike, to name just a few. I mean, those are real conversations about racial injustices and inequities. And sometimes those talks were painful. But I'll tell you this, every single one was necessary. From CNN, Don Lemon joins us in the steam room. Every year, I don't know if you guys garden, my hydrangeas come back, they'll be a different color right? The tulips, the um, orchid. And you know why they're a different color? It's because of what you put in the soil. It's because of what the concentration of the soil. It has nothing to do with the plant. The plant's the same thing. We're all the same thing. But it depends on where you were raised and how you were brought up. So if you were brought up in America in a system where the default is whiteness, which is, inherent, which is inherently biased. So the culture is centered around you. That's the normal. The factory reset is for normal in America is whiteness. And so how could you not be, be racist considering the way that you grew up and, and our history and that you don't learn about black history and true history in, in schools when we, grow, when we grow up? So I think we should stop saying, stop being so defensive and saying we're not racist and say we are. And 
what do we do about it? Maria Taylor of ESPN joining us. What is it like for you uh, when you're saying, okay, we're not talking about, you know, what's going on on the floor. We're talking about what's going on in the world. Oh, no question. There, there is a very loud, I think, minority group of people that are telling us, still hitting us with the shut up and dribble button and just wanting to only come to the game to watch the game. And the reality is that there is no player in the NBA that is whatever 80% minority, or even if you add an international, they can't turn off being black when they get to the court. So it's not fair for them to be expected to do so. So if they mention it in their post-game presser, then we should be able to come out and have that conversation. CNN commentator Van Jones, when I listen to you talk, you and Chuck, and I want to act, I want to help create results. You know, this is one step, being educated about it. And the next is, what do I do? Where you work, where you pray, where you play. Where are the black people? Are they just working in the kitchen? Or, or, or pushing them up? Nothing wrong with that. All work is dignified. But how come they're not in the boardroom? How come they're not in the pipeline? It's not just the intellectual capital. It's the social capital that determines your access to financial capital. Everybody knows that. It's not just what you know. It's who you know that determines whether you're going to get that job, that promotion, that introduction, that exposure, that chance to go to that convention. And so who are you mentoring? Who are you reaching out to? Um, and you say, well, shoot, I tried to do it. I don't know how I feel nervous. We got to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. And we got to have an equality of discomfort. Killer Mike joins us. Killer Mike got me inspired. It just feels good to learn something you didn't know because I think it makes you, I think it makes you a better person. I think it gives you empathy and I think it puts us all kind of on a road to, um, you know, CS Lewis had said, you can't, you can't change the way it began, but you can, you can change the way it ends. Absolutely. And I think what you bring to the table puts us on the road to that end that we want to see. So uh, so thank you much, man. It's been an honor to honor to speak with you, man. It honors me as well. I just, just Chuck, man, absolutely. Individual connections and relationships will help progress this nation faster and further. And, um, Ernie, I, I firmly believe, and even though it sounds kind of blunt, white people should be teaching white people. And what I mean by that is if you get a chance to the white audience on the other side of this, please go watch um, the Jane Elliott blue eye brown eye experiment because it is a white woman from Iowa. I don't know. I don't know if it gets much wider. <laughs> um, teaching teaching a, a class of of, of white children um, in the sixties and in the eighties what what the, the the mythology of racism has created. Right by, by saying simply by this difference somehow you're lower than me. Racism was only created five hundred years ago when the Catholic Church gave permission to the Portuguese in Spain to subjugate Jews and Negroes in particular for these particular jobs and purposes. So we can get rid of this, you know, if we if we are teaching this in pre-K versus teaching this in eighth grade. And to the individual relationship point that Chuck made, if we as Americans make it our purpose to seek out and, and ally and befriend people who do not look like us, that is the greatest connector in this tapestry and this quilt that is being made.
wrap things up on this best of guests special edition of the steam room, uh, perhaps an unlikely headliner, uh, a former NBA player who quite frankly lost his way, endured uh, unimaginable lows, came out on the other side, strengthened by his trials. I mean, that Rex Chapman episode was our most downloaded and listened to show ever. And for good reason. I mean, Rex's story of resilience is incredible. And he's really good at telling it. It's Rex Chapman, ladies and gentlemen. And I got to tell you something, man. I saw, I believe it was an E60. Yeah. Took us from, from through your career and, you know, highs and lows and that kind of thing. And it was awesome. And, and I knew back right then when I was watching that, I was like, that story's good for your soul because it's a redemption story. And it's a, you know, I can look at you now, you're 52 years old and say, well done, man. Way to, way to get it back. What was the low point for you? Man, it seemed like there were so many of them, but from about 2001, 2000 to about 2014, you knew I had some issues with some pain medicine, but you didn't really know, you know, I didn't really keep it a secret from people. I'd been in rehab, I guess, at, well, I ended up there three times over, over 13 or 14 years. But yeah, I got arrested in Phoenix, man. I'd gotten divorced, small kids, uh, all kids at the time were under 18. It's insane thinking that you have. And I got arrested in Phoenix for shoplifting at an Apple store. And when I say that, I still, it still makes me want to cry because that I, I, I can't believe it. I just can't believe it. It's me. A lot of guilt, a lot of shame that goes along with it. But at that point, man, I knew something had to change. I, I was going to die. I, I was at some point I wasn't going to my really, I think my only real saving grace is once people can't buy pills anymore, they go to a needle. I never did. I guess that that was sort of my walkaway point. But I know this, had I not, had not something not happened to me to jar me and get me to go, hey, you got to get get a hold of this. I probably wouldn't be here right now because it, and it's taken you guys, it's taken love and support and so many friends and family. Hell, I lived on a, on a couple of people's couches out in LA for a couple of years. I lived in my car for a few days, but that was it. And I, I, the guilt, the shame I felt over it, that I still feel over it, letting people down, letting myself down, letting my kids down. I just tried to dedicate the last five years to doing the next right thing, showing my kids a better me, trying to think more about others and, and less about myself, but I'm still pretty selfish. I just think it's such a valuable story that you tell, and you're so transparent when you tell it. And I just, I think, I, I can't even imagine the number of people who are listening to this who are saying, man, I needed to hear this because you're not the Lone Ranger, man. and the thing about the Apple store thing, it's like, there's video. I've never watched it. I just can't. I just can't. I wondered if you had, and then I wondered, what were the reactions you were getting? And did you think, you know, in the old Jimmy Buffett line, did you think you had pissed it all away at this point? Absolutely. And I'll never forget sitting in rehab about 10 days later in Louisville, Kentucky. And our guy, John Lucas, flew in from Houston. He sat with me for, for a minute. Rick Pitino came, talked to me. Both those guys gave me a couple really good bits of advice. I looked at John, and at this point, I'm wanting to get out of rehab and get back home, see my kids and all that. And I looked at him. He said, when you leave here, you need to come out and stay with me for a few months in Houston. 
And I said, how long? He said, as long as it takes. And I was like, oh man. And I've known him again, since he's David Falk. We go back, you know, forever. And then Rick, Rick Patino came over and sat with me and Rick told me something and Rick's been through his stuff, man. And I was crying and I was just, I was like, I'm toxic. Uh, nobody will ever, I, I can't work. I can't, I'm, it's over. And he said, listen, get through this stage and just know over the next few years, you're going to eat a lot of shit. At first, it's going to feel like it's the size of a beach ball. You keep doing the next right thing. It's going to go down. It's going to be the size of a basketball. And then it's going to be the size of a softball and a baseball and a ping pong ball. And then it's going to, if you keep doing the next right thing. And for whatever reason, it stuck with me and it helped me get through those you know, early days. And there's people along the way. When I watch you guys talk about what's going on socially right now, it fuels me. It really does. Because I think I walked through a lot of my life just really pretty damn privileged and, and never really thought about to what magnitude. But I just want to tell you, man, I'm so proud of you. I've always liked you as a person, as a player, but now as a man. I appreciate it. Me and you and Ernie, we're so lucky and blessed in our lives. But when you screw up and I screw up, man, it's so low. I tell people, uh, when I spit on that girl in uh, New Jersey and I was sitting in my hotel room crying and everybody, you can't watch TV because everybody's killing you. And I deserved it. When I got my DUI, it was the exact same thing. And you're like, everybody in the world hates me. And then a couple of people reached out to me and meant a great deal to me. I like what Patino said. Things are bad, but if you keep doing the right thing, they will keep getting better. That's all you can do. You're not as bad as your worst moment if you learn from it. I think that's applicable to all of us. I'll, I'll say one thing, you know, we do, we get a lot of love from people and, and whatnot. And I just kind of walk through my day sometimes still just kind of in a daze. I was going, this has happened about six months ago. I just wanted to tell you this. It, it gave me one of the best feelings I've, I've had in some time. I was going to the gym and I don't, when I go to the gym, we don't want to talk. You don't want to talk to people. Yeah. And so I just had my head down and this kid behind the counter, probably 25 years old, he looked at me when I walked in and I kind of had my head down, headphones in like an asshole. And he, he uh, said, Hey, are you Rex? And I went, yeah. And I kind of went on by, went on in, didn't really spend much at any time. I just kind of flew right past the kid. I came back out and he said, Hey, Mr. Chapman. I said, yeah. And he goes, I'm sorry about you. I just wanted to tell you, you spoke at a place uh, where my dad was in rehab about six months ago and he's out and he's never been better. He, I'm so happy. He, you told it, you said a couple things that, Oh my God. And I just hugged him. I don't know the kid. I just hugged him and started crying. I said, Hey, thank you. Thank you for telling me that. I mean, I didn't want to hear it to begin with. Right. I dismissed it. And then he just, he wanted to tell me something to make me feel good. It was amazing. Hey, Rex Chapman, um, this has been this has been some awesome time. And I, my wife Cheryl Ann Chuckster knows her; she's a saint. Uh, but but she spent part of her part of her working career um, trying to help uh, folks who were addicted. You know, she was running a women's you know the in charge of a women's program at a residential facility for years, and and so I would see the frustration she would have sometimes. Um, but I'd also see the celebration 
uh, when when you she broke through with somebody or somebody had a breakthrough and it was like they were able to break those bonds. And I feel like I'm watching one of those today um, just because of, of where you are in your life right now, man. It's good for your soul. Thank you. I listen. I love you guys. And your friendship truly means a lot. I can't say it enough. Love you, brother. Be safe. And that'll wrap things up for part one of this special edition of The Steam Room, highlighting some of our favorite guest moments from season one. Hope all of you loyal steamers enjoyed it. Keep an eye out for part two coming next week. And I'll give you a little hint. It has an answering machine theme to it. Yeah, I know you're hooked. All right, let me hear that theme song. Chuck and Ernie in the steam room. Come and join us in the steam room. Chuck and Ernie in the steam room. Leave your towel on in the steam room.